Uh, let's open to Hebrews this morning. Good morning, everybody. God bless you. Hebrews chapter 10. And as you're turning there, uh, just to give you a heads up, uh, next week, uh, Andrew and Olivia will be on vacation, uh, enjoying some time together. So we're going to have a treat. Um, Judah Baker, who's the assistant director at the Renovation House, is a gifted uh, worship leader. So I've asked Judah to fill in next week. So he'll be here with, uh, I guess probably our friends from the renovation will join them, but uh, he'll have Zahn and Andrew singing and leading us in worship next week. So that'll be a, a fun experience. Uh, fun? I don't know. It'll be different. It'll be great. <laughs> so, yeah, just so you know. Yeah, so this morning, uh, Hebrews 10... Uh, we'll finish up the chapter. Uh, that'll take us into Hebrews 11, the famous Hall of Faith. And uh, just pray for God's guidance. i tempted to take our time and just kind of highlight the different individuals, men and women, that are highlighted in there. Uh, that would take us a long time. <laughs> I don't want to get too bogged down in the book of Hebrews, but uh, just God's wisdom. He'll lead us, and it'll be great. So what we'll do is we'll pick it up at verse 26. We left off last week at 25. We'll read through the end of the chapter and make a few comments. Hebrews 10:26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were enlightened, you endured a great struggle with sufferings partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on the prisoners and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance." So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Quoting Hosea. Last verse, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Oh, man, that's some hard stuff to read. Quite honestly, right? Uh, so the text, as I see it, it breaks down into two very clear p 
portions, verse 26 to 31, I'm going to call it um, the great catastrophe. It's people who apostatize, and we'll talk about that. And then verses 32 to the end is an example of great courage. And the author is encouraging them. He's, he's wanting them to remember their first days, first love, and how they responded in the face of great persecution. So that's how we'll look at this this morning. Um, so first, verses 26 to 31. And uh, to help us a little bit, not that we need it, but um, just give you uh, a little illustration, something that uh, my family and I had uh, an interesting experience um, decades ago. We went to the Genesee Country Village and Museum in Mumford, New York. If you haven't been there, it's well worth your time. Uh, it's a village kind of living experience, living museum, I guess you'd say, set in the mid-19th century, so it's 1800s and, and such. So we were there my family and I, and we had taken a place on a hillside overlooking an open field because they were going to have a Civil War reenactment. And the way they staged this thing, and it was all fully, fully done, right? I mean, these people, Civil War reenactors, make a big deal out of this, where they literally camp. It, it looks like you're in the era, in the day. And uh, as I recall, uh, from our vantage point, on our left was the Union Army that was advancing in this open field. And on our right, in the hedgerow and in the trees and behind the rocks were the Confederate soldiers. And as the um, staged event took place, and they're actually shooting stuff, I don't know, it was quite impressive, but uh, the Confederate army uh, regathers and they advance. They come up out of the, or they come out of their hiding spots because they have to, you know, uh, meet the advance of the Union. Uh, and, you know, so we're just like enjoying this live theater, if you will. Uh, but it was very striking <laughs> because as they closed ranks upon each other, and you could tell that it was going to end up in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was very striking because all of a sudden, in the back of the Confederate army, a dude spazzes out and he runs away. And the leader of the Confederate army turned around with a musket and shot him dead. And we're like, oh my God. So uh, obviously, you know, it was a gut check to everybody. Uh, don't apostatize was basically my connection to the text here this morning, right? Um, and I thought about that, and I, you know, clearly it, it sends a very strong message. It's a huge warning to everybody else who has it in their own heart. It's like, I don't want to do this. It's too intense. I might die. And, um, well, you're going to die. <laughs> That's a fact. It's just... Die the right way, <laughs> okay? Die keeping your faith in Christ. Uh, apostasy. What is it? Um, 
I'll define it this way. Apostasy is a willful and deliberate, a willful and deliberate rejection of God and his teachings by a professed Christian. Much like our soldier who, you know, apostatized in the, in the heat of battle. Uh, he turned away from the mission. He turned away from his comrades and he ran back, right? Um, Paul would famously say of Demas, his friend Demas, that he has deserted me. This is Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Demas has deserted me. That's apostasy. But listen, it says, having loved this present world, right? You're going to die. Just die the right way, brothers and sisters and Scott, right? So this man, Demas, like our soldier, like the people being referred to in our text, turned away. A willful and deliberate decision to turn away from Jesus Christ, the Bible, and church. How do you know if someone is apostate? By their behavior. Right? They run. <laughs> they go back to the world. They, their behavior would indicate it's, it's... I'm not saying we're here to be fruit inspectors and judges of our fellow men and women, but eventually Demises will manifest where it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so they'll go back to their old way. They go back to Egypt, so to speak. So what we're dealing with here in these first verses of 26 to 31 is once again, the author of Hebrews issues a warning. It's probably his fourth one. He's going to have one more in chapter 12. And this is, might be the sternest warning, really, in all of the New Testament. It's very, very challenging, and it is a warning. Uh, what we're dealing with here, and as I see it, is a, a small, specialized brand of Christianity, this is kind of a niche market, if you will, right? It's a smaller, particular group of people who, and I'll just go back to my Civil War analogy, men and women who are marching in rank with the church, but they're really not in the church, even though they're in the church, if you're with me. And it eventually will manifest by them departing, deserting, like Demas was hanging out with Paul, the apostle, but eventually didn't want any more of it. Now, I don't know when and where that happened or why, but it evidently it became evident in time. So, I ask myself a question. Does this warning really apply to me? Does it apply to you? Um, or do I write this off and say, well, I hope whoever needs to hear this, hears this. Fair enough, right? Um, small fellowship here this morning. I don't know exactly where everybody is. I'm pretty sure of most of you because I know you well enough. Uh, but maybe you do need to hear this. Maybe there needs to be sort of a gut check 
For I think it was shocking, it was necessary and shocking for that soldier who was shot in his desertion. It, was, it sent a, a shot really across the bow of everyone else who was still in the battle to examine, to say, am I really walking in the faith or not? Um, so is it, a, is it a warning for me? <laughs> or does my heart connect with the words of Paul? who said, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded. I am persuaded, and I am personally persuaded, and I know who I believe, speaking personally of myself. But I then have to say, listen, Scott, if Lucifer can become Satan, who do you think you are? Because here's an angel who is a higher in, in, in existence and form than a, than a man who apparently was the anointed cherub who led worship in the presence of God surrounded by glorious angels and yet had it within him to want to be like God. And he fell and great was his fall. Irredeemable fall. So it does cause me to examine my own heart. After all, the author begins with our eyes on the text. He, he says, for if we, he includes himself. He's humble enough to say, I know my natural man. I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. This is a reality. My heart is opposed to the throne of God. I in my natural man that lives right alongside the supernatural new creation, there is an opposition to God's authority. I don't want to obey him. I want my way. And the author is honest enough to say, if we, he includes himself, to acknowledge, as I've said. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, the question that may come up in your mind is quite simple, which is, is this a text that says a born-again, regenerated Christian can decide to leave the faith and therefore never go to heaven? And I believe it's not. I don't believe that that falls into this category. Uh, This book, I'll be honest, be very honest with you, I approached Hebrews with fear and trembling because I knew there was texts in here like this, and it scares me. And I didn't want to have to do the hard work of examining. But I'll tell you, as we're here closing out chapter 10, I'm more convinced that the author guarantees us our salvation And these words of warning, which he constantly is throwing out there, is saying, I know that there's mixed in your crowd those who profess Christianity, but they're not really Christians. And so he put these warnings out here. So again, I say, well, does it really then have relevance to me? Yes, it does. Yes, it does because I know that in me is a desire to sin willfully. All sin is willful sin, for the most part, right? 
We make choices to do or to watch or to think things that are immoral, that are ungodly. But this is a very particular, this is a very, as I said, it's, it's a niche sort of specialized sin that where you have made, uh, you've, you, you've stated something or you've, through your words and actions that have said, I'm rejecting the gospel. And for that, there is no forgiveness. It's unpardonable is really what it is. So, uh, it sure does highlight the seriousness of sin, though, doesn't it? <laughs> the deadly serious aspect, the deceptive and controlling and enslaving nature of our sinful, of our sinful nature. It highlights that very strongly. Um, when he says no more sacrifice for sin, uh, again, negatively, you can say, okay, well, that would indicate that you can't be forgiven and you won't go to heaven. Uh, positively, for those of us who are fully persuaded, it says, I am forgiven and I'm going to heaven because there's only one sacrifice that has any value, any saving power for those who believe. Okay? So positively, I can, I can see that positively there in the text. Verse 27, there's a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Um, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. Don't like even saying those words, without mercy, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. However, brothers and sisters, take note. The fact that it's even written in advance tells me that the statement in and of itself is merciful. It was written into the law. The author is quoting the Jewish law that God had given to Moses through Moses to his people. And so they had forewarning. Very, 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 very extremely rarely does there, is, is there a judgment that takes place out of nowhere from God. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament might be an example. Well, they are an example. It's just like, whoa, there was no forewarning. It was without mercy. And they became an example, right? So, very, in fact, I think Isaiah calls his judgment, it's a strange work. God is not in the business of condemning and judging people. He's in the business of saving and redeeming people. Right from the very get-go in the Garden of Eden, this is his desire that all men would be saved. But the author mentions Moses' law, and he says it's without mercy. Well, as I said, the statement itself is a merciful statement. My brothers and sisters, when's the last time you read Revelations chapter 6 to 19? Sorry, Revelation 6 to 19. Are you familiar with the tribulation period? It's a period of seven years of hell on earth. But I just take note, it's, first of all, it's already written. God has forewarned. There will come a day, which is a seven-year period of time, when God will begin to personally judge. I've studied Revelation. We're going through it at the renovation house, and I'm being reminded that whenever there's judgments and there's trumpets and bowls and seals and such, it always starts in heaven and comes down to earth. It starts in heaven and comes down to earth. It's not man created. It's God doing it. 
in various methods. So it's been, pre, pre, it's been predicted, and even in the midst of it, it goes on for a period of time because he wants people to come to faith. So that, I guess I'm just saying that because it, it helps me when I read passages like this, which are hard to read. It's like, wow, fiery indignation, right? People are going to get what they deserve. It's just a, it's a reality. You're going to reap what you sow. It's a principle that cannot be denied. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. So the author speaks from the lesser to the greater. He now goes from Moses' law, verse 29, to the gospel, to the new covenant. How much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who is trampled, and he gives three things, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So, uh, by the way, um, I mentioned that in verse 26, the author says, if we sin willfully, Notice here in verse 29, he says, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy? So he separates himself. He's honest enough to give some real introspection. Really, what am I pursuing? Am I going after Christ and and trying to live faithfully to honor him in all that I do? Yes. Okay, that's good. The warning has had a good effect on me. But he separates himself here in verse 29, and he says, how much will he be thought worthy? That's how I'm seeing it. To these three essential truths, three primary, immovable, essential truths, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God's Son manifest in the flesh. It's a statement of the highest authority, the Son of God. It rocked Pilate's world, right? He's caught up in this mock trial, and the Jews are screaming for Jesus' crucifixion. And then all of a sudden they said, well, he says he's the Son of God. And Pilate's like, whoa, stop the music. He goes in and he says, who are you? He's shaking in his boots. He, he's, he understands that term maybe better than we do. He's like, you're talking about divinity here. And he's like, who are you? Jesus was silent. He goes, are you a king? He goes, you said it, man. I am a king. That's why he wrote King of the Jews on the title over his head. You trample underfoot that you just don't regard God and God's son, number one. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Now, I'll be honest, by which he was sanctified has caused a lot of arguments over the years among the church. Well, that statement would indicate that the person is a Christian. They are sanctified. They've been set apart by God's grace. And then there's others who see it, and I fall into that camp. I admit it. That it it indicates that Jesus' blood has the power to sanctify but it doesn't necessarily mean, and I back that up with the, with the greater context of Hebrews and much of their scripture, that these people had available to them 
a sanctification. In fact, if I go back to our analogy of professed Christianity, they're living in the group, and so because of that, they're experiencing the sanctifying influence from the true believers. Paul would mention that about an unequal marriage as he writes to the church in Corinth. The gospel came to Corinth. Well, I think he says, well, so maybe there's a spouse who becomes a Christian and there's another, and, he, and they're married to someone who doesn't become a Christian. He goes, well, what do you do with that? He goes, well, there is a sanctifying influence from that Christian spouse in the home. And, it, and God's spirit, his presence in that vessel, in that human, has a sanctifying influence on the children and in the home, on the spouse. Okay? So I see a correlation. That's how I'm viewing it, if it comes to your mind. Back to the second essential count of the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. It's just whatever. It was just an unfortunate martyrdom. Sorry. They don't see the atoning work of Christ. It's not, it's not the source of their life, of their own personal forgiveness. They, they lose sight of the, the love of God in Jesus Christ on the cross. And then finally, they've insulted the spirit of grace. It is the Holy Spirit. It's the only time in the Bible he's mentioned is the spirit of grace, by the way. I love that. Jesus taught us the Holy Spirit will come into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's God's divine influence through the divine spirit working on people's hearts and mind and soul to bring them to the end of themselves. It's a spirit of grace. And evidently this person, these people, have had great influence from the spirit of grace. I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit is here in this room because we bring him with us. I think it's safe to say that he's outside of us as well. He's God, and he's in all places at all times, and he knows all things, and he just invisibly resides here, and he gathers with his people. And so his influence on friends and family members who come who are not Christians is profound, and we can never sell short the power of the spirit of grace upon a heart of a, of a person who is sincerely seeking to know the meaning of life and who is God. But uh, these people who have received the knowledge of all of this truth, he said in verse 26, then desert, make a willful, deliberate decision to say, I don't want anything to do with God or with the Bible or with the church, I'm out of here. And he's like, and the author's like, I'm so sorry for you. Because there is, barring a repentance, a full acknowledgement as I am a fool, I have, a, I have turned my back on God, please have mercy on me. Barring that, and I, it would almost appear that, I mean, this is Jesus' words to the Pharisees. As he drew a line in the sand imaginarily, and he said, I'm warning you, you are attributing the work of the Spirit that you have seen demonstrated through my life in bringing speech and sight and, and, and exorcism to this young man. It happened right in front of your eyes, and you're attributing the work of the Spirit to the devil. Jesus drew a line in his saying, as I'm warning you. 
You cross that line, it's a point of no return. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Does that sound like Jonathan Edwards, any of you? <laughs> Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That guy's way misunderstood, by the way. Somehow it happens, right, in, in our world where we, you know, give great, attention to superstars of the faith or in the world in general. And Jonathan Edwards will probably always be remembered for most of us who haven't read about him, and I haven't, to be honest, uh, as the man who preached that sermon, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And then he was just some wild, crazed, frothing at the mouth, just screaming it. It it wasn't at all. It was way out of step in who he really was. He was a soft-spoken man who would read his sermons with deep compassion. And, uh, yeah, so whatever, that's, that's that. So that's what I would call the great catastrophe, right? Um, we're going to die. Just make sure you die in the faith, Right? with true, genuine belief in at least those three essentials are those three that are highlighted in chapter, in verse 29. Are you agreeing with that? Do you see that as, does your spirit go, yes, yes, Jesus is God. Yes, he died for my sin. Yes, the spirit of grace has borne witness to me. And I know that when I die, I'm going into his presence. Not because I'm sitting here in a building or because I read my Bible because of what Jesus Christ has done. Period. Period. And it's been my humble response to him, recognizing that he died for my sin, for me personally. And he could do that because he was God. Yes, it was 2,000 years ago. But as I mentioned many times, right? The effect and the beauty of his, of this divine human one is that his offering could have effect for all men in all directions from eternity past to eternity future. And so I can stand fully persuaded and yet honestly warned in saying sin is seriously, it's serious (laughs) and it's deadly And so when the spirit of grace convicts your heart and says, don't do that, don't do that anymore, and you go, yeah, I shouldn't do that anymore, and then you do it again, be careful. Be very, very careful, right? It has a deadening effect. It has a a deceiving effect. And thankfully, God will judge us He will chasten us. The author will talk about that in chapter 12. Father chastens those whom he loves, right? He's after you and me to keep us walking in the way. So I'm thankful for the warning. At the same time, it scares me, and I'm glad that I can move on (laughs) to verse 32 because I don't like preaching those verses. But we don't have a choice, do we? 
By the way, before I do depart, I just want to say that, um, do you know what's going on here in the text? In, in the greater context, we have people who are Christians who are going back to an older way, a more traditional way, a way that was filled with, as somebody said, bells and smells. <laughs> it was traditional. There was incense. It was just more substantial to the senses. I think there's a great relevance today and into the future and into the future because there will be and there is a response I think happening in Western Christianity where people are starting to respond to the shallowness of mega of super cool worship and very little meat and disconnected from others and on and on the story goes and there's a response to go back to the older established religions old impressive church buildings where there's sights and sounds and liturgies that speak of the ancient orthodox faith and gives a sense of stability and comfort and reverence that's what they were doing. Indeed, more particularly, they were turning their back on the finished work of Christ and going back to an older system that was there to tell them that there was a new system coming. So it's not a perfect analogy, but it has similarity, and I think it has relevance for what's happening. I see a small or a steady migration out of what we might call just Western evangelicalism back to some other traditional religion with the bigger buildings and the sights and sounds and liturgies and the more of the ancient Orthodox faith and this sense of stability, comfort, and reference. And I'll tell you, there's nothing wrong with any of it. My opinion, which is worth very, very little, but there's nothing wrong with any of it as long as it doesn't supplant the truth of the Word of God. It is concerning to me, however, because it's acceptable religion. It can be even state-sponsored. It's easily tolerated, and it can be unoffensive and non-threatening. If you're just looking for that experience. If you're going to leave this experience and go to that experience, then it can be non-threatening and unoffensive. So I think there's relevance for it today. Look, I get it, right? We're sitting in a room that seats 90 people <laughs> with simple little space and compare this to some of the great cathedrals that you've all visited that are inspiring in their architecture and they just sort of come with a sense of holy reverence, right? And uh, I love that part of it, honestly. Uh, nothing wrong with any of it. 
but if, just a word of caution, that's all. May the Spirit of God work in his people regardless of where they gather so that our faith has an impact in our hearts and in the world in which we live, regardless of where that happens. So that is a good segue into the courageous part of this text, all right? So the catastrophe, uh, now we go into the courageous part, verse 32 to 39. Uh, And the author basically just says, remember? (laughs) Remember the former days, (laughs) right? In which after you were enlightened, you endured a great struggle, a great struggle. He adds that adjective, a great struggle. The word struggle there is, uh, I don't remember the exact Greek, but it translates athlete. It's, there's, a, there's a sense of uh, athletic competition involved in which somebody really trains hard to cross the finish line ahead of others, right? And that's the word the author is using here. You endured a great struggle. This was first love. This was when these people first became Christians. There was this marvelous uh, life that they began to live and and suddenly they found themselves being persecuted and it came with all kinds of pain and and insult and injustice and slander and the author would say verse 33 that you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations spectacle we get our word theater it was you were publicly put on the stage almost, and everybody was looking at you. The majority were looking at you and going, you're, you're wrong, you're bad, you're weird, it's, it's not good. They were sanctioned. They became poor. They lost their possessions, and they took it joyfully. It was an amazing experience. It's the experience that you and I, I hope, can testify to when there was just like that awareness where the light has come on in your own soul after you were enlightened. And it doesn't have to have some dramatic change. It can just, like C.S. Lewis famously said, I got off the train and I realized I think I'm a Christian. (laughs) Right? Because he thought about it for a bunch and he talked with Tolkien and a whole bunch of other people while he smoked cigars and drank beer. It was interesting. But at some point you realize God's love fills your heart and the spirit of grace speaks to your spirit. And there's a certain amount of persuasion. There's a deep conviction that you're responding in first love to the one who loved you first. And it's just like it doesn't matter what you think. I know who I know. And it came with all kinds of hardships. Partly while you made a spectacle, he says, reproaches and tribulations. It was very, very challenging. You were slandered and censored and abused and mocked and ridiculed. You was absorbed injustice from bad men. And you weren't ashamed, he said, to be counted with those who were being treated that way. Partly while you became companions, he says in verse 33, of those who were so treated. That's no small thing. There's a group over here who's getting all this stuff happening to them. And you go, hey, I'm one of them. Well, okay then. Join the persecution. It was no small thing to, to claim your allegiance and your, your connection with those folks. 
You had compassion on the prisoners and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves. You know what's happening here? They basically are being treated exactly like Jesus was treated. And I can tell you this, they experienced fellowship with him in that. It's called fellowship of his sufferings. They were treated exactly like him. I'm closing up my own reading through Luke right now. I've come to chapter 23. I hardly got through the first three verses in a couple of days of thought and prayer and devotion. Devotion, right? And I thought, here come these guys to Pilate, and they said, we have found this man, a disturber of the peace, and he's causing all kinds of trouble in this nation, and he refuses telling people don't pay taxes to Caesar. And I thought, you big, fat liars. We have found. You didn't find anything in him. You're lying. And you're bribing the dude who can accomplish your will in the process. And Jesus stood there and heard it all. And he absorbed that in real time. It was painful to his heart and to his soul and to his mind to hear and to see men who are just evil and getting away with it. So they think. So they think. Amy Carmichael wrote a very beautiful poem. I'll just read this to you. It's short. Somehow it seems like it connects, connects to the text. Amy Carmichael. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them helly, bright, ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But yours are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? These people were scarred emotionally, physically. There was a deep, deep connection to their Savior. Just to close this up, I, I asked myself, what happened? From then, <laughs> their former days, to where they are now, what happened? And I think it's interesting that the author says in verse 32, he, he calls them to remembrance. Remember. 
not to beat you down and go, oh, look, you're not what you used to be. He's using it to encourage them. That same Jesus who filled your life with zeal and conviction and convinced your heart and mind and soul that he's alive and that you have a hope, a future hope, that you're going to die in Christ. You will die and you're going to die right. And you're going to be so thankful that he's rescued you from yourself and he's given you a world vision or a vision of the world. Paul says, I'm crucified the world. The world's crucified to me. We have nothing in common. And yet I love the world because God loves the world. And I'm here for them. I'm not against them. They're against me, but I'm not against them. They think I am because they preach a gospel that convicts men of their own personal immorality. And yet in the midst of that, there are some who become enlightened. And the author's saying, what happened? Remember those days? He recall, he says, I'm, I'm writing, I recall the former days. Paul said this. Actually, Ozu, if you would put it on the screen, First Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 1, you know these verses, right? Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. I remind you, it's the exact same word written to young Pastor Timothy who was pulling back because Life in the ministry and with, it had become difficult. Life as a Christian had become difficult. Paul says, I remind you, same word, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7 and 8, Oz. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Sound mind, New King James. It also means discipline, self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me of his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. My brothers and sisters, basically the author is saying, you need revival. You need a fresh visitation from God himself. Where does revival start? It starts in God. It starts in the heart of God. And it comes down from God into the heart of his people. We're revived. It starts in God. And it comes down to us. Which takes me back to verse 19. So with your eyes on the text, Hebrews 10, the author would say, Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's why it is vitally important for every Christian to spend ample amount of time that's necessary for your brain as you process what's going on around you. It's, oh, God, it's insane. Japan. It's like, what? It's Japan. And the dude's dead. Holy cow. to spend as much time with the Lord, to have him, his life, influencing my life. That's where revival starts, and that's basically what the author is calling them back to. Go be with Jesus. Look what he says. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, verse 23. 
and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You see the order? Be with God first and then be with his people. And the more we spend with God, the better we are going to be for one another. What was the old saying? Right? You, you better kneel before God before you stand before people. <laughs> right? Let's stand and pray. I think that's good enough for this morning. Lord, we do need, uh, we just constantly need fresh vision, Lord, a fresh, fresh visitation from you by your Spirit. Lord, your passion for the world, it's not mine. Your love for God, Jesus, exceeded <laughs> where you could take joyfully the plundering of your own being as painful as it all was. Come and meet with us, Lord, personally. I pray that as we depart here today, we'll just give some personal thought and take this warning to heart be encouraged and to meet with you daily. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.